You are listening to the Special Needs Children podcast with Chitra Iyer. Chitra Iyer is a parent of 22-year-old Shravan Iyer who has epilepsy, cerebral palsy and autism. She is the CEO of MFA and has been helping families with life-centered planning to reach their personal financial goals. She is also a trustee of a parent support group, the Forum for Autism, which was set up almost 2 decades ago. MFA is a 16-year-old organization working in the personal finance space. They have set up a dedicated practice to help families with special needs children to plan their financial goals and invest for the same. The thoughts shared here are a result of discussions with parents, caregivers, siblings and professionals regarding the planning of a person with special needs. In this expert series podcast Chitra is talking to Dr. Rubina Lal, a parent, professor, special educator, and researcher. She is the founder member of Sopan, an NGO that works for autism. Sopan started Samarpan Center for Autism nearly 20 years ago in Mumbai. She will be sharing about her work with families of children with autism. With her rich experience over the years with families universities special needs schools and the government this podcast will bring her life story to all of us who truly appreciate her work in the field of disabilities hi rubina a big big warm welcome to you on this expert series of my podcast for special needs children thank you for your time and agreeing to share your wisdom with all of us just to introduce you formally to our listeners dr rubina lal worked at the post graduate department of special education sndt women's university mumbai as professor in special education before establishing suvidya center of special education suvidya is an affiliated college of the university of mumbai and runs the bed course with specialization in autism Suvidya is run by Society of Parents with Autistic Disorders Sopan an organization known country wide for its work in the area of autism Sopan started in 2002 under her leadership being a qualified professional and a mother of a child with autism she visualized planned and developed all of Sopan's projects Dr Rubina Lal began her career as a teacher for children with autism intellectual disability and learning disability and worked in that capacity for over a decade as a special education teacher she interacted closely with parents and families of children with special needs a recipient of the Fulbright postdoctoral research fellowship and the Maharashtra state best university Teachers Award Dr Rubina Lal has authored 3 books and published several scientific papers in Indian and international peer reviewed journals Dr Lal has served as a member of several committees for curriculum development for teacher education at the national and state levels She was nominated by the RCI Rehabilitation Council of India as a chairperson of the curriculum committee for developing disability courses 
for the two year bed and med special education for asd courses in 2016 she was invited to sweden as an expert to participate in the meeting for development of the world health organization international classification of functioning criteria for autism Dr Lal has been a PhD advisor for many years over the years she has been consulted by many state and central government agencies for development of policies and programs for education of children with autism in India Thank you Dr Lal welcome and uh, you know it's so amazing to have you here you've done path breaking work in the field of autism in India can you please share your journey of living with autism with your daughter shinjini how you decided to educate yourself become one of the best professors in this field of special ed go on to set up so many institutes ashiana samarpan and of course sopan and now shanai um thank you chitra once again for inviting me for this uh my journey <laughs> i wouldn't say anything much special there but it all began of course as most of you know with my daughter shingini years ago when i had her at that time people had no idea about autism and neither did i of course none of the doctors in mumbai knew anything about it and uh, yeah i happened to just learn something about it or read something about it used to prescribe to a magazine called it digest those days and there was this uh, human interest story there which described a child as blue rose you know described the child as blue rose and the child wow. had uh, symptoms which are very very similar to shinjini's and i said my god and they they had said that this child had autism and i said these are the symptoms when my daughter is showing so it must be autism of course we're just a parent guessing something and i would try to say that to the pediatrician who was sending us to all kinds of places for you know ruling out down syndrome and ruling out this that and the other i think I, i must have done so many doctor shopping so many places not doctor shopping as such but to just find out what was wrong i knew there was something wrong but what yeah. would give give me that answer uh-huh. what was wrong because physically there was nothing wrong all tests of down syndrome and all of these came came negative so we were at a you know just we didn't know where we were, we were but i knew there was something wrong there you know so it was more of trial and error than when finally we did get to, get to know i think the first one who told me and who confirmed what i was feeling was mrs dikmani krishnaswami i i don't know if you know about her she is in bangalore but i consider her my mentor because i began my career at spj sadhana but before that she used to come and give us lecture at the ba special education which i did at those days when because i felt she needed required some help and i couldn't see any help any help happening in the environment uh in the schools that they were so i felt i should empower myself and i kind of do my a course which i happened to know about somebody i met somebody who was doing that course and she said why don't you do it? it's a good course so i think i must have been in the first few batches that began at sndt so i did that course and in that course i met, met mrs krishna swami and she said uh, you know she offered me a job at uh, before the course ended she said why don't you join us and she actually 
you know, gave me a lot of ideas, inputs about autism, and uh, you know, started giving me input. And even like you know, she said, you must bring Shingini to SPJ Sadhana School, and she must study there. And we did that. And that is how I got some support. Still, it wasn't officially the way we know autism now, but it was better than what it was before that. So that's where it all began. I started working there. Learned a lot there, actually, and as, as a school teacher, whole lot. I would say I learned as much there about disability as I learned later on as a researcher, of course. And that experience I got there while Mrs. Swami was there, Mrs. Swami was, uh, I would consider that as uh, something which is invaluable, a lot of a good experience. And it, it, during that course, I also got a chance to go abroad and learn a little more about, you know, about uh, um, ABA, uh, Applied Behavior Analysis, and its application for children with autism. And I learned a lot in depth because I was uh, living there in a residential care and they were running this course. So um, it was like, you know, hands-on plus lectures happening together. And uh, I learned a lot about managing behavior there and came back and actually started that unit there for autism. And that was something which was a turning point in my life, you know, to when I actually started focusing towards autism. And I would say it was in the early 90s, yeah, 89, 90, that I actually began focusing on autism and using ABA, discrete trial training as, uh, you know, as a base for my work there. And I saw the changes which happened with children there. So that was a very good thing for me. I now realize that a lot of things which uh, ABA promised or promises or DTA says, DDT says now are not really applicable across the board. But still a good program, I would say. So that was one good thing which happened to me. And things after that just opened up. A lot of things happened. I changed course. I left being a teacher, became a teacher educator. And uh, since then, never looked back. And then uh, what happened, which you have mentioned, is uh, Ashiana was just, it was just a chance that I happened to attend a meeting by Rotary Club. And there was this lady who said that, you know, I want to start something for autism. And I felt, uh, why don't I help somebody who's interested? I mean, this is a social service organization. They have no personal stake like we have as parents. They don't have, but they are wanting to do something good for our children. And why should I not help them? So I volunteered to help them and they just grabbed me. And Rashiana happened because of that. And uh, I spent a lot of time with them designing their uh, structured environment or hiring staff for them because I happened to be luckily at SNDT and I could actually get a lot of my bright students there. So I hired staff for them. All of that I did. And then it had to happen. Sopan had to happen. It was a, you know, lots of people were getting into autism by then in the early 2000s. People were interested. You people were doing a lot of good work as well. Then there was Vibha, who was also upcoming then. She was going to set up. So Sopan was also another thing which had to happen then. And it happened. Again, set of parents who were at Ashiana who told me, uh, you know, we want to start something, a parent group and something like that. Would you help us? And again, I felt these are parents like me. But I have an advantage that I have also, you know, a qualified teacher. So I should help them. What I didn't know then that I, they are going to put me in a place where I'll have to have a lot of uh, say. And that came and the documents came to me for signing. Then I realized my name was there for a president of the organization. Anyway, it was just a small organization there. And I signed on it. 
in my mind i don't think i had thought of anything at that time i just felt i need to help these parents because they are parents like me so i divided that and the next best thing that could be happen was setting up a school because these parents wanted a school which was run by them yeah that was just a starting point what i'm most thankful about is the faith that these parents had in me that they allowed me to do everything which i thought should be done and uh, they had complete faith in me that is something that i'll always be very very deeply grateful to them and uh, it worked out it just worked out when i look back now i also on my side did not hold back anything from them i gave whatever i had everything that i could have i gave and not gave i would say i loved it. i just loved doing that i just loved developing their projects writing you know project proposal meeting funding agency getting this done meeting government agencies whatever it took to you know develop an organization i did that i'm happy it's turning out well and i'm happy we are at a cusp of actually starting our new center yeah it's uh, i'm happy where whatever i did for them turned out well generally chitra i'm very happy with my life at the core of it very grateful to shinjini because if she had not come to my life i wouldn't have been where i am today i think all of us believe that all of us are thankful to our children they made us who we are today and i am especially happy for that i will ever ever be if there is god in this world she is that for me she gave me everything that i could ever have that was lovely rubina thank you so much for sharing your journey with us talking about your mentor talking about shinjini sharing about everything that happened and you know shaped your entire uh, path and uh, how you went on to help so so many more families it's it's amazing as an expert in the field of autism one who has worked extensively over the years with the government and other private institutions what is the big change that you would say has happened over the last 40 years since your daughter was born See, lots have happened i would like to focus on things that have happened and there are amazing things that have happened in india in the last 30 to 40 years if you go and see 30 to 40 years not a big time it's not a very great span of time but from where we were in the 80s to what we are now is a lot of change that you see from not knowing anything about autism we have thriving centers now everywhere okay there are at least in the big cities there are and i keep hearing about people who are from smaller cities who are doing something however small or however whatever the quality but the fact i value is that they are interested in doing something for autism and there is awareness at that level that we have to do something for them for children with autism so there is a lot that has happened in 30 to 40 years that a lot of that change you don't see otherwise in the social fabric the kind of changes that you see in the disability area you know from having nothing they were in the 80s i mean in if you look at the 70s there were no proper training programs in the 80s you had set up all the national institutes came up number of them and they started so that was the initiative the government took and uh, you know national institutes had a huge big agenda of uh, you know human resource development research uh, support at grassroots and so on publication and all of that so all these also made a big difference to the way disability was being treated at that time 
So the institutes came up, the, the statutes came up. There was the National Trust Act, the RCI, the, RPW, the erstwhile PWD Act. All these happened in the 90s. Then we went and signed documents at the international level. So we had the, we were signatory to the UNCRPD. So there are lots of good changes that have happened. And I'm very thankful that I was, you know, we were, we lived in the time that all these were happening, you know. So the, it, for a country which is actually uh, a developing country and has huge challenges in terms of uh, population and shrinking resources and corruption and whatnot, wars and droughts and famines and all kinds of things, terrorist attack, to have this kind of movement in one direction is a very positive thing. So I would look at the positive side. It's very easy for us to look at the negative and say much can be done. Of course, there is no end to being things being done and improvement. There's no limit to improvement. There's always need for improvement. And I would say, yes, there is. There is a strong need. If you look at it at the national level, the very strong need, people say that policies can be formed only based on data. Right. Government can make schemes and policies based on data. Do we have a data for autism and India data? We don't have. And nobody has actually bothered to see that in the census, there was a half-hearted attempt in the last census to include autism, but there was nothing like that. It was coming under the category of others. Now, others means what? If people who have a child with autism don't know what it is, they will definitely not give information about it. So that disability is not counted. So data is something which is paramount of importance, of paramount importance, and that data is lacking. What we have is sample surveys. And my feel is that a lot of these sample surveys are also kind of guided by the surveys that have come from abroad, which is saying one in 49 and one in 69 and so on. I personally do not think autism is that highly prevalent in the rural areas, okay? And most of these researches are done in the rural area. There is one research from Haryana and North. There is another one which is uh, I saw some time ago, maybe a, uh, a year ago, which was talking about in, the West, in, in, in West Bengal. Well, a lot of these data was collected in the rural. So I failed to understand how the data was matching. If it was done in the urban setting, I would still say that... Um, in the urban setting, there could be a match between the data from here and from and those which is emerging from the Western country. But I do not think rural area has that much of a population. But that is what is showing here in the researches. So these are, and at the same time, I'm not doubting the veracity of the researchers. Okay, not just, I'm not saying that. But a sample survey is only a sample survey. It's not a pan-India data. It's not a census. So based on that, the government of India should make policies and schemes and try to implement them, which is not happening. Yeah. In fact, here I would like to jump in with my next question, Rubina. That personally and as well as at a professional level, what are the changes that you would like to actually see in India for disability? See, we say that they are, we are focusing on research, but we are really not focusing on research. And if there are researches happening, if you see the researches that are happening uh, in, um, in the national institutes, a lot of it is on sample surveys. There are survey researches. A lot of it is, uh, it's not really showing 
effectiveness of teaching strategies or intervention strategies or advocacy strategies and uh, how how good they have been and why should they be replicated those researches are lacking which are evidence based practices what we have a lot of uh, overwhelming number of researches that have happened are mostly surveys surveys are basically status studies but what to be what is to be done to change the status to something better is now required i i hope the researchers in this area are now going to look at what are the practices which will change the status it's very easy to do a status study simpler to do a status it only requires large number of people to contact but what works with even a small percentage of people and replicate that finding in different sets of people is what is required and that should be the focus when we do researches and i think the national institutes or any research organization should now focus on those areas i'm i'm sure i'm not so well versed with what is happening in the medical field uh, i know that uh, in in delhi some of these organization which, which hospitals and medical institutes are functioning or even down south in bangalore there's a lot of work happening which is of the medical nature but then again that is a little away from the kind of work that we do that is more of medical because that is going to be handy very handy but for a person to live his life effectively in the community i think we need to look at the social researches which are more handy social and educational researches which are more important for us to look at and i don't see much happening there except these survey researches so in continuation what would you say is your wish list rubina for families with autism my wish list for families with autism you know um i'm sure you've seen these uh, the facebook and all the social media has a lot of these networks okay of parents um maybe because of so many years in the field maybe because i'm now a jaded parent <laughs> when i go through some of the comments i find uh, that there's a lot of anxiety which is there it that could be because it's coming to you i mean you are experiencing autism in your child and it's never you've never heard it you never were never part of that never seen something like that and you are very worried or uh, you are uh, getting a lot of information from google and finding you know working out your own uh, interpreting it in your own way and you start putting it on in the social media and a lot of times some parents will say look i tried this and it worked where it is very good to say that and share what it, what worked with you there is also a pitfall there that when you say it worked you are generalizing a practice which is not to be taken like that uh, something which worked for your child in, in your environment may not always work with somebody else but a lot of times in these network groups if somebody says it worked for me other people feel that oh this is the best way to do this i think we need to as parents we need to learn to evaluate what is good and how much good it is for me and to what extent i can actually support it if you remember chitra some years ago there was this big fad of uh, diet therapy yes yeah, yeah and yes. everybody was into it whether they could support them financially or they could support it any otherwise you know whether it was viable for them to sustain that kind of a thing in their household or not 
Sometimes I've heard mothers saying that my child is not supposed to have wheat. So I don't buy wheat now. I don't buy atta. So I don't give it to anybody. Now, and I found those kind of comments very, very, you know, dangerous thing. Because you've got siblings, you've got older people in the house who require that. You know, and by just for one child, you're depriving everybody's health. That kind of thing also happened those days. And I think over the period of time, people realized the gain which was there out of diet therapy did not outweigh other losses that were happening. And perhaps that's how the whole thing has died down now. And people now realize that it should, it should be given only to those who desperately require a diet therapy, not as an as a evidence-based practice for everyone. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that is the thing which I'm worried about. Those these networks are very nice. Such support groups are very good. They help parents, you know, feel better about each other. They they feel they're part of a group and there are other people who are in the same boat. All those are positives for me. But I think parents must also know and understand, and these are all very educated parents, that um it's not the end of the world having a child with autism. Definitely not. And whatever works with one parent may not work. It's just like a, I like bagan ka bhaji doesn't mean everybody likes it. In fact, the next question, Rubina, you've actually partially kind of started answering. Uh, the question to you is, what are the three most important things you would like to tell newly diagnosed parents today? Yeah, uh, I would say I would say that too. Not just a newly diagnosed, also to those who have become a little older, uh, there is a need for parent to change the status of their child. A strong need to make things normal. So they try different doctors. They actually, I mean, sometimes, you know, we've had uh, a very well-known pediatrician here in Mumbai who knew me for a long time. And... Uh, he had, I'm mean, just digressing a bit to explain to you what I mean. Uh, he had, you know, he had come to me and he said, look, I would like to send very young children uh, who are one year or less, but I feel there's something wrong. And if such children, if I send to you, would the parents, uh, would you be able to help the parents? I said, most certainly, because these are early signs of autism. And if we can actually at that time give intervention, it will be the best thing for the child because the impact of autism will be much less. So he sent a couple of parents and you wouldn't believe Chitra. The moment a kind of, a, 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 you know, a screening tool was also used on them. The very next day, I and mean, we said, look, you know, if you want these therapies, we will provide it. And these were well-off parents. They just refused to come. They didn't want to be told that there could be something wrong with the child, even though they had feared it. Okay, so that kind of fear is there with the parents deny. Now, the group that we are talking about, you know, parents group, there is no fear of that kind. But definitely there is a, there is a desire to change the status of the child in the sense, if it was not autism, it would be good. And then we go here, there. I've had one child that I see very regularly. Okay, I see an old gentleman, maybe a grandfather walking with this child. And uh, it just so happened that during the pandemic, the mother had contacted my coordinator. And I knew which child then. And she said, you know, ma'am, but she doesn't want any therapy. She doesn't want any intervention. 
she only wants a certificate saying that the child doesn't have autism. Now, this is a 10-year-old one. When they're seeking help only for getting a certificate of no autism. All right. So one can deny to that extent. You are not just denying autism. You're denying the child to write to intervention, proper support services. So I feel the parents must understand this is my child. This is my reality. I need to move on, help him live his life and do things which are good for him. But the older parents also have seen that they'll go for one medicine to other medicine, to one intervention, to other intervention, to one operation, to another surgical thing. Nobody wants to know whether the child would want it. If he had a say, would he have said stop now? But because we are parents, we feel it's our duty, moral right to go for further and further intervention, investigations, for what? Is this a child which matters, not his status? So I feel in my wish list, I wish, I wish parents would understand, is the child's life which matters the most, not what he is to me, not what he should be to others. Yeah, Rubina, that was extremely touching and uh, so true, uh, whatever you shared. You, you have conducted so many workshops across India and other countries as well, uh, purely based on, you know, the kind of experience you have, the kind of research-based experience also that you have. It has definitely benefited thousands of families. What do you think are the biggest challenges to access intervention for children today? What would you say? I think, uh, see, autism intervention is expensive. You have to accept that. It is expensive because merely because they, as they, when they are children, they require a lot of the structure. And a very structured teaching will require, you know, a smaller group. So the therapy or intervention, whatever you may say, becomes expensive. And it is also essential. The child requires early intervention. Early intervention will have to be given one to one. So it becomes expensive. That is, I would say that financial thing is the most important aspect there. It's not that parents don't want to have therapies. They want to give their child the best, but they can't because it's very, very expensive. Whether it's Indian, India or abroad. I mean, all these years when I was younger, I used to kind of promote DTT, discrete trial training, because I had learned it, used it, found it very effective. But I realize now that I can't really, because it's very, very expensive. Even in India, it will be expensive. And across the board for all children, it doesn't work. It works for very young children with autism. That kind of structure cuts you out from social milieu. So while it teaches you a skill, you need to also have a social milieu to use the skills in. Okay. So autism interventions are expensive. That is one thing which keeps the parents away. And of course, there is also a belief that you only look at, and initially the pediatricians also were not very helpful there. They, was, they would not know about autism much at that time. And they would say physically the child is absolutely okay. Why is the child not identified very early on in autism? Whereas the soft signs of autism are being shown, I would say from very, very, two months, three months, six months onwards. The soft signs are all there. But no pediatrician on their well-baby clinic or week, a monthly visit to the, to the doctor's clinic 
nobody will say this child seems to have autism or developing something like that or showing early signs. No one, because they don't bother to look at that. They're only looking at milestone physical. And that is all. But soft signs are very much there. In all my training programs, I focus on these soft signs to make people understand that you need to catch it very early. Okay, so I feel that understanding across the medical profession, understanding of autism also will help people do things in their proper way. And uh, accessibility to uh, intervention at a cheaper level will also help. Perfect. Absolutely right. Rumina, you have been on various committees that help monitor the services available for our children today. Hence, on the subject of rights of a child with autism, what would you like to tell the parents, professionals and the entire society at large, please? I think it's very important. You know, there's something we all talk about the IEP. You must have heard about it. No? Yes, Individual sir. education plan. I think we need to move from there to looking at the person and plan for the person, plan for his future. The IEP generally will focus on what a child can't do. Okay, let's teach that. Professionals also will look at, oh, this perceptual problem, this attention problem, this is the memory issue, this is the eye contact, and all of that. Nobody actually sits with the parent and asks, okay, tell me what he can do very well. Parents will have things to say when you ask them that way. I think we need to build our training program on those strengths and develop capacity rather than find faults, you know, deficit things which are not there. So I would say even parents can focus on things. And it's amazing the way the children with autism can, you know, arrange things in order, remember things. I think these are things which we overlook, how they can do things in the right, uh, you know, in the right sequence and remember the, uh, you know, the correct order of things, organize themselves. These are some of the things that we, we uh, you know, we need to value, which you often we don't even bother about it because we are so worried about the challenging behaviors and so on and so forth. Even the challenging behaviors. If you understand about autism, you will understand that these behaviors are not challenging. These are something the child cannot help. He's having a discomfort somewhere and because of that, and he's non-verbal, he's not able to say what he wants to say, and he's not been given any alternative means to say those things. There is no other system that we have taught him we focused only on verbal or oral approach. And so he has no other way but to throw a tantrum or throw things around or push somebody when he actually wants to have something. Because that's the only way he gets attention. So I think we need to look at things a little differently. If the child requires another means of communication, be happy to give it. If the child is small, he will, with intervention, develop oral spoken language. If he has the ability, he will develop and then he will himself not use the alternative means of communication. But in case that doesn't happen, he has the alternative means of communication to fall back on. I think as parents, we need to look at that. As professionals also, we need to look at that. I don't think training programs are focusing on development of social and language skills because these are the core areas of deficit. Instead of that, if you go to an inclusive school, you see them teaching academic skills so much and ignoring the social behaviors. With the result we've had in our, when we have our IT training program, we have a school pass-outs who come there and they don't have basic social skills, but they have finished their 10th standard. 
So that ability has been tapped, but a very important ability which should have been actually developed has been ignored completely. So we need to have a focus which is, uh, you know, uh, more holistic. Because social behavior and living is, uh, is important for living in, the, uh, in, in, in a community life. Absolutely right, Rubina. You have been guiding a lot of parents on future planning when the child becomes an adult and everything changes for the family. What is the advice that you would like to give young parents to start thinking in terms of future planning, including finances for their children? I don't give much advice on the financial planning because I don't think I'm that kind of uh, an expert in financial planning so much. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I would, I one thing which I'm, Chitra, I'm very keen on, it kind of, you know, uh, it, it could be completely against thought process of a lot of people. And while I respect their thought process, I do believe a lot of parents want residential care. I know that. Okay. Everybody has that worry in the, the heart. What is going to happen after me for my child? So residential care appears an answer. Um, to me, I'm not, though I respect that, and I feel residential care is an option, which should be taken as the last one, in the sense that if there is no other way, if the parents are dead and there is no other person who can care for the person, this person with disability, or the parents are incapacitated, have become too ill, too old to care, then also there's an option. But I am not for people with disability to be put away just because there is a residential care available. Because to me, all these 30, 40 years that I've spent in the field of disability rehab, I feel it negates the money, the time, the effort, the energy that has gone in to develop this field. I just we spoke about what has happened in India in 30, 40 years. I think it negates everything, whether it was public money, private money, personal money, whatever. It negates because we always had the choice of a residential care. Why should we go through the whole process of rehab, teach our children, fight for inclusive education? I know Forum has done that. You know, how much you all have worked towards inclusive education, that child should be there. But at the end of it, if the parents are saying, I think in residential care, then the child need not have gone to any school. We need not have created all these facilities. For what? So much of CSR money has come through SOPAN also. And if we give advice, okay, residential care for your child, that means we say the child is still not fit to be in the community. I think we need to create within the community certain, you know, uh, pockets or, of support so that the child is retained there. Not saying that if there's no other option left, you need to have. But what is happening, Chitra, is the more residential cares are created, the more options there are of two parents to put away their child. I think whatever the child can learn at home, no residential care can be a substitute for that. It can only provide care. It provides shelter. It provides food. It provides uh, you know, looking after. So I think as long as possible, I mean, sure enough, put a child in residential care if he's in the 50s and requires much more support, difficult to give at that age. I'm for it. It's just like, you know, my belief about hysterectomy for girls. I would not want to have that. Just because it makes a mother easy to take care of. I would not want to 
because if the if that if i was that young person and if i had a voice i would not want my you know my womb to be removed just because it was convenient to somebody else that decision had to be mine and i have respected that for my daughter not gone for it recently she did have some health issues with that and i still asked the doctor is there an option for her i don't want his direct me and he gave me an option so i'm just sharing that even though i'm much older now it's difficult to take care but i would not want that to be done to her body when her body actually doesn't require that kind of an operation so options should not be there to convenience other people options should be there to convenience the person himself to me residential care right now is not the option it should be an option when you are aging like a lot of people are now going to old age old who when it's difficult for them to take care of themselves so that option is there then but we see young children going away that is something which i i personally i respect the people who are doing it but i personally would not want to action it we have we have not wanted to do that in fact i was about to ask you what are you doing now specifically about shanai can you please share with us shanai is actually having three different things one of course is that we are replicating the services that is there at samarpan so it's a service for autism there school and training unit uh, all the therapies etc all the intervention everything and uh, of course we have a respite care where we will take people for a month maybe less whatever people will come spend their time 24/7 by the time they are there but it's not a permanent facility for anyone okay is for respite to parents in case they have other commitments which are important commitment or they just want to have time off maybe to make a take a vacation or whatever they can put their child in our care Shanae is at uh, Panvel, New Panvel, in the West, Panvel West, Khanda Colony, Sector Seven, at uh, Plot Number B, eighteen. So the 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 unit has uh, we have started. We have hired staff now. We will be functioning properly after Diwali. So the school will start. The respite care center uh, is all set, is all ready, but we haven't hired staff for twenty four seven. Warden and a caregiver, and so so I will hire as time goes. But then it will not be a permanent residential care for anyone. We don't want to provide an option of leaving their child there. That is uh, I'm not. I'm not disrespecting anybody else's thing. This is this is what I felt, and Sopan respected that. It's an eight bed facility, whereby we will have people coming who need care for a short period of time. and then we have the college that we will move there we plan to move suvidya there are you planning to scale up here beyond eight not not right now maybe in future sometime if at all but not now it's also cost money <laughs> it's not exciting. i totally understand luckily you have a brilliant team and you're so blessed with all of these people who have supported you we were lucky Once to have got we were lucky that sidco allotted land to us I think we've just been, uh, yeah, we've been lucky. I think, <laughs> God willing, things go well. Thank you so much, Rubina, for sharing your journey and your story. Uh, it it was really amazing listening to you. I really, really appreciate you sharing your life's experience in this short time. And I hope this podcast will be heard by many to listen to your thoughts and understand the efforts. that need to go in for a better future for our children thank you very very much genuinely appreciate you for sharing so much with all of us thank you chitra 
you were listening to the special needs children podcast with chitra ayer the ceo of mfa and a trustee with the forum for autism if you find this podcast relevant and interesting it will be great if you leave a review share like and subscribe you can also let us know if there is any specific topic that you would like us to cover feel free to email her on chitra.ayer at myfinad.com or you can call her on 9833785892